Tom, when did you decide you were going to be in the film business? Was, was it a childhood dream or it just sort of happened? Um, yeah, it, it became um, a childhood dream. Um, I actually got into it uh, at a pretty early age and it, it was a very specific moment too because in um, in 93, my, my mom actually took me to a, um, uh, an afternoon screening on a Saturday. We had, we, we had one little theater in this, this town that wasn't even my town, but um, this valley that I grew up in. Um, and she took me to a, um, a Saturday afternoon screening of Jurassic Park. And um, at the time, that was just, yeah, the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I'd liked movies before, but like I walked out of that wanting to do make my own stuff and after that my brother and I who was also the screening uh, yeah we went home we took we uh, my dad happened to have like one of those like old uh, what was it a super VHS camera and uh, we just started making like uh, you know silly little short films like a little black and white thing that was five minutes long uh, 20 minute film about like cannibalism later on and uh, yeah some of them um, uh, you know, I was lucky. Like they were Switzerland's pretty small, so it's like they um, they were able to like show some of the stuff on like national TV. We got into a bunch of film festivals. It wasn't anything big, but it was just, it was just it was just exciting. And uh, yeah, I just I got hooked. <laughs> and so I um, at some point I decided that I should probably go to film school and learn how to do this the right way. Um, and so I thought, at the time, uh, you couldn't really study this in Switzerland. I think you can now. But so I looked at, um, uh, at the film school in Munich that was on my list. I was gonna, uh, I think it's where like Roland Emmerich went many years ago. So I thought about going there. Uh, then London, I forgot what it was called, but there's a, a film school in, in London that I considered, just because it was still kind of close to home. But uh, yeah, at some point I was just like, oh, whatever, let's just go, <laughs> let's just go to LA. And you know, you're in your early 20s, so you're um, not, not, well, I guess you're a little naive, you know, but um, at, at that point you have no attachments. So it's just, it was, it was pretty easy. So at 20, yeah, I moved to, uh, moved to LA, um, went to Los Angeles, um, to LACC for two years and then transferred from LACC into USC for the last two years. And uh, yeah, graduated with a BA and uh, uh, started doing like a lot of short form stuff, got into like uh, some music videos, uh, commercials, but it was like at a time when the budgets on those started to drop. So it was, um, I kind of left that behind and started working in TV for a few years. Had you ever been out of Switzerland? Um, like travel, N not well. Yeah, actually, I had been to L to LA before. That's right. Um, in high school, with two of my friends, I think I was fifteen at the time. We we came to LA for like three weeks, uh, stayed in Santa Monica, and just kind of you know hung out, watched movies, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's when it kind of became a real place. You know, you get off the plane and you're like, because you you grew up in Switzerland, like this, you only know LA from you know 9021 like what you see on tv and like the, the magazines and stuff but um uh, yeah i mean it was probably it probably made it easier to relocate here having been here before because you knew that no oh, this is a real place I, you people actually live here you know so you saw jurassic park 
-hmm. in Switzerland and it was what 90 93 I 93? think it came out here in 92 but at that point Switzerland was always like six months behind oh, so okay. uh, yeah I think it was 1993 uh -huh. so you pro it prompted you to go home with your brother and make this this film that was a short film uh -huh. do you remember like that whole process of, of of making it, yeah, yeah creating it, this um, world. I mean, it was only five minutes long, but it was it was ambitious, not in terms of scale, but in terms like thematically. Actually, uh, I mean, it's probably if I looked at it again now, it's probably very simple. But it was like a, it was a bit of like an anti-war statement, um, and it was called "We Are Chips," black and white, and it was really just about a guy watching TV and um, uh, with what he was watching. It was just kind of a bit of a criticism of uh, you know countries going to war and the way a, uh, a teenager would look at it I think because I grew up during the um, when I was a teenager like the, the Bosnian wars were going on and it was you know pretty close to home we had a lot of refugees coming in so it's like you always kind of saw that on the news and I think that's sort of what triggered that right yeah so how did you edit this film or, or did you not edit? you said it was five minutes was it just um, one take with that one let me think because I had done some very basic stuff before that I, you can't really that was my first real short film before that we had um, with those two, same two guys that I went to LA with we did like uh, we did like a, like a sci-fi thing that was like all animated but at that point we still edited it like it was like tape to tape literally with two VCRs um, when I did the first real short I'm trying to think what Oh, oh, it was Premiere. Yes, that's right. That was before Final Cut and Avid and all that. I had, um, well, I didn't, but my friend had Premiere on his computer. So thus we, we got to do like some of the very early nonlinear editing on, uh, on his system. That's, that's how that happened. Yeah. How is the cinema experience different? in Switzerland versus the States. And I'm sure you were thinking of the 90s, so was, everything's yeah. different at that point. Well, I mean, I don't know what it's like now because I haven't been, I haven't seen a movie in Europe in, I mean, I moved to when I was 20, so it's been 18 years. But when I grew up, we, like I said, we really just had uh, just that one, and again, I should, I should mention that I grew up in a town uh, out in the countryside. So it's like we were just, there's just four, at the time there were just like 4,000 people in this small town. You had to travel probably like five, six, across five or six other towns to get to the one theater that catered to this entire valley of people. And it was just a single screen theater at that point. It wasn't anything fancy, you know, it had been there for um, a long time. It's actually still around and it's still just that one screen. But um, I, I know before I moved, that's when uh, Switzerland sort of had the first like multiplexes popping up. But uh, I mean, obviously moving to LA, it was, you know, you, 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 you didn't get any of these single screen theaters. It was all, all in the mall, you know? Yeah, when I first came here, like Beverly, what was it? The Beverly Center. That's where I saw my movies. <laughs> yeah. So it's pre, pre arc light. Right. Yeah. Pre movie pass. Yeah. Which yeah. I hope sticks pre, around. Pre movie pass. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Pre movie pass is great. How many scripts did you write before beginning on your feature film? Or Danger One. How many feature scripts? Mm -hmm. well, I, I didn't. I didn't write any. It's not. It's not something that. Um, I think I'm. Pretty, I've become pretty good at working with writers, but if I had to actually sit down and write a script, I could get very frustrated. <laughs> but oh my god, it was. It was. A, it was many. Um, I mean, I graduated in '06, 
and um, I only got this movie made. Uh, we shot it in 2016, so for 10 years, um, I was probably like a dozen, you know, um, probably a little bit more in the, over the last few years because you're working with more people, but um, yeah, it was it was probably a dozen. That's interesting. So you say you, you wouldn't be able to, to do one or maybe be too frustrating. Do you like to sort of be hands-on and moving around? Is that sort of more your style? Um, no, I just don't think, I, I don't think I would know how to even get started on, like I, I'm very good at structure and st stuff. And a, a, a lot of the stuff that, um, uh, that I have turned into scripts with writers and friends is stuff that I originated. So I, I think just writing a treatment or even outlining stuff I can do that, but once it actually comes down to like opening final draft and starting to create scenes and stuff, I, I, I feel like I'd be kind of lost. I like when I, when I get, when someone writes it and I, I get it and I read it and I can do notes on it, just because there's something concrete on the page, it's a lot easier for me to go in and see what works and what doesn't. But um, I just, I probably just, because I, I pretty much doubt everything that I put on the page if I did it myself. Yeah, it's just not, it's just not. And I, I'm, it's good that I'm aware of it because I feel like my time is spent better doing other things. And usually what I do is when, um, when a writer works on the actual script, I go off and um, do uh, either ripomatics or even shoot a full-on sizzle. Because th that's what I'm good at. That's what I'm, I'm confident doing that stuff. So kind of like those two things happen, you know, at the same time. So by the time the script is locked, we also have a full sizzle reel that we can go out and pitch it and show people what this is going to be like. Um, which is also how we, it's how we got Danger One uh, made, actually. Um, we, that was like a three minute sizzle reel. We shot the whole thing and uh, it just kind of showed people what the tone would be. And it's not even, um, some of them feel like trailers. This one was just more kind of like a short film, like a scene that wasn't even in the script, but that kind of took place in the same world. And uh, yeah, it just kind of gave people a feel of what, when they read the script, this is what it's going to feel like and sound like and look like. I want to go back to that world because I want to hear about the ambulance and, and how you were able to create all that. Uh -huh. But I wanted to touch on one thing and you said you would doubt something and, and not be able to maybe move forward. Do you think that's almost uh, a blessing in some sense because it forces you to make something perfect. You know those people that they kind of think, oh no, this is great, and they don't question it. They just think, because I did it, it's great. But people that question things often, turns out their work sometimes turns out better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely a perfectionist, which um, is a blessing and a curse, because you also, it's a hard, you have a hard time letting go of things. You start like micromanaging stuff and obsessing over the little things. Um, no, I mean, it's hard to describe. It's just like, I feel if I had a blank page in front of me, and I can type up a scene, but I'm, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't be, while I can take someone else's script and know if this works or it doesn't, I don't think I could say the same thing if I wrote it. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, just my brain, my brain doesn't work like that. Are you always anticipating the next step? In, in what? In, in, in whether it's being on set, whether it's finding a writer to collaborate with. Do you find that about yourself? Uh, that I think ahead and yeah, yeah I mean I'm, 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 a, I'm um, I mean that's probably my upbringing too it's just us, uh, us as Swiss people you know we we like to plan we're very organized people sure. 
we love we love making plans. I'm a list guy. I'm, I make lists. I make lists about lists. Nice. You know. Um, <laughs> I like that. So yeah, no, I definitely. Um, and you know, you you plan, and then obviously things don't always go according to plan. But having a plan is it, it, it's comforting. You know, so because you get anxious when it, it's funny because a set for someone with like my personality is really the worst place to be on because because I'm a very structured person I like when things are organized and planned and that's sort of the opposite of a movie set and I know they I mean they say a movie set is organized chaos but on a movie set everything can go wrong and oftentimes it does um, so if you really think about it that for me is a place where I should just drown in anxiety but I think the reason I do like it and actually look f I mean I, you know I get scared obviously I think most people do before the shoot not not scared but just um, well yeah I guess you get a little scared because things can go wrong but like the reason you crave it again is it's because it feels like a bit like an adventure it's like jumping out off a bridge with a, with a you know you bungee jumping or jumping out of a plane um, it just pulls you out of your comfort zone and um, it, it kind of I mean this maybe this might sound silly but like when it becomes that little adventure it kind of feels like you're just very alive you know what I mean like those are the moments that that you remember that just getting pulled out of that comfort zone where everything could go wrong it's just it's, it's a bit of a rush you know it's like an adrenaline thing almost um, so like the second it's over and uh, I tell myself, you know, wow, I'm relieved that we got this done. I kind of start craving to be on a set again where everything could go totally wrong. And it's, yeah, I think it's just the excitement. Well, I know we were talking about that setting up and just sort of the, the contrast of, and I, I brought this up, just the LA world of, yeah, keeping everything loose and yeah, we'll see. And if we'll start at this time, even though we said we're gonna do this time, and versus being very precise and and how that is hard to whether you come from another state or another country that is more precise in some ways it yeah. can be interesting to navigate because that's the culture here and it's it is hard for people that are even from california but they're not from la you yeah. know to navigate you know, so. well and, and you i mean i've been here now since uh, 2000 you, you don't get used to it you know it's <laughs> right like emails not emails not getting you know not getting a response in an email not getting calls back it's sort of the norm in this town but uh, no it, 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 it drives me it drives me crazy you know I, I like structure when it comes to these things and I, I honestly feel um, a lot more would actually get like this town could be so much more efficient if it was a little bit more uh, you know, structured and and I get it. Not, uh, people don't have. I, I think a lot of things probably just fall through the cracks because there's so much going on and people. You know, you you take a bit of a shotgun approach where everyone works on a million different things, so you can't really. You know, you things start falling through the cracks. You can't really dedicate your time on equally on all these things. But um, no, it's. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna get used to it. <laughs> you know, but I do my best. I try to. I try to operate like that. Yeah, I'm wondering how, how do you go into a situation that knowing that you are structured and that's great and I think it has a lot of pluses to it being so structured mm -hmm. but then you may be dealing with others that aren't and that's part of their creative process and how do you make that work? 
Well, and I mean, I think that's the scariest thing about uh, doing a movie, you know, it's because in the end, you're still, uh, there's still a hundred. I mean, we had how many people working on this movie? A hundred and sixty people on this oh, wow. small movie. And it doesn't matter how organized you are. There's going to be other people in there who, you know, uh, that will make mistakes, will do great things, but also make mistakes. And uh, you're, you're, you're really only, I mean, that's how, that's why they always say you're really only as good as the people you work with. I, th I think that's why people in this town, once they've got kind of like found their, you know, their crew, their gang, they stick with them because they know, they know what they're getting and that things get done. But um, yeah, but you know, that's, that's, just, that's just how things go. You just have to jump in and hope for the best and do your best, you know, like if even when, um, like it's, it's not a reason for me to say, well, I mean, I probably don't have to organ be that organized just because things will go wrong anyway. You know, I, I do my best and then hope, then hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if we can rewind a little bit to 2006. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's think the economy was had seen better days at that point. Yeah. Even though there were hints, there were rumors in the air that things were going to uh, topple, but some people chose not to believe and some people did. But so what were you working on? What was in your mind in terms of what you wanted to create? Um, well, at some point I got into um, editing reality TV. I just kind of, at that point, a lot of my friends kind of slid in on that because reality was like, that's the, when it started to get big and there was a lot of it. So like coming out of school, it was a good way for us to, um, to make a living. Um, what, um, and, and I got a lot of a lot out of that. Just being able to, I was able to make money and then use that to work with writers, hire writers, actually pay writers to write stuff. Sure. Um, again, to finance sizzle reels. You know, besides all the other things you learn uh, doing that, working in TV, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's a great teacher as well. I mean, yeah, I know some people feel like. There, there is like some people feel ashamed, like oh, reality TV. But I mean, you're working, you're making great money. There, there's nothing wrong with that. You're in the business. Yeah, well, there's a lot of lessons actually. I mean, yeah. especially, um, and I actually don't watch reality TV just also because I, I worked in it. Um, yeah. But uh, I've heard that as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, you really more so than in scripted, you really learn how to, especially as an editor, you learn how to shape stories because on a scripted show. Well, as the name, the name implies, there's a script. So the story is there when they shoot it. In reality TV, there's no story. They just shoot everything and then it gets shaped uh, in post. And I mean, at this point, everyone knows that reality shows, they're not real. Sure. You know, it's like these stories are, are fake. So editing um, reality, you really, you really, you learn a lot about just cre creating character arcs, uh, structuring things. So I think it actually made me a, um, a better storyteller, just working with writers. It also makes you a, a better director because, I mean, editors in general, they, um, you know, you, you, as an editor, you really know, once you've been doing it for a while, uh, what shots you need to get to tell the story and what shots you don't need to spend time on because in your head, you already know we're not going to use that. Um, and again, I think in reality, even more so than because you have to look for good shots because they just everything's just shot on the fly as opposed to a scripted show where everything's again more structured, where the shot you get is the shot you're going to use because someone else has decided. 
when you, in reality TV, where everything happens in post, as the editor, you're again sort of creating the shots, you know, because 95% of it is not usable. Um, so it, it helps with that. It just makes you a more um, efficient director when you're on set. Um, and also, like, and I've, I say this a lot too, it kind of um, it gives you thick skin. Because when you're in film school and you know you you you're young and like you feel like everything you do is great, you don't want to get you know criticism hurts a lot and you you feel like everyone else is wrong and this is great. Um, if I had done a movie straight out of college, that would have been brutal, you know. Just because again it's a collaborative effort, so there's so many people giving input, you know. But working in in TV and especially as an editor, where your work gets not criticized but like noted. By producers and executives at networks, networks every single day, and sometimes the notes you get, especially from the networks, they're you know they're not very nice. They're really <laughs> just they're kind of insulting. And early on, when you start out, you're like, who are these people? This is this is so mean. But you do that for you know ten years. At some point, your skin is so thick, it's just sure we'll we'll do that. And so when you're um, when you're then allowed to make something else like like a movie. Um, yeah, you, you have you, you got the tools to work in a more uh, in a collaborative um, environment like that. It's especially hard because it's it's a creative thing, because it's a creative job. It's inherently uh, personal, you know. It's and especially if it's something that you developed, that like like a script or a story that literally came out of your brain, um, and people start improving it or putting their own stamp on it, which is just how these things that's just that's just how these things go um i'd say straight out of college that stuff would have been hurtful you know there would have been uh, a less positive experience now it's just you're used to it you know that's how these things get made so i mean i, I while i don't watch reality tv i think it was as much a boot camp that prepped me for making a film like this than film school if not more so you know? That's interesting. Plus, you're working under pressure. Yeah. And and so so many people think of the creative process. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to be rushed, or I don't want you know. But at some point, people have to wrap things up. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how many hours you were working at the time. Let's say if we went back to 2006 ish, uh -huh. 2007. How many hours were you working a day? Um, well, as an editor in TV, you're you, you're sort of on a 10-hour shift. So the the, you, the the days are pretty long, but also you're doing freelance, so it's like you you have a lot of time off. Meaning you do usually it's like you know you, you do a gig that's a month long, or you get hired for two months. Sometimes you're lucky and it's a three-month gig, but then you're once that's done, you're looking for a new job. So oftentimes, even though the days are long, um, you then have a month off, you know. But uh, yeah, where it's 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 10 hours is how long we're. Usually it's like people come in at nine or ten, and you leave at seven. Oh, okay. So seven there's or eight. Oh, yeah. So there's no real time for you to actually be creative on your own stuff at that time. But I'm sure at some point you were thinking of I want to do my thing oh, down the line here. Well, no, you do it at the same time. I mean, you just don't sleep. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think because even even now I sleep like four to five hours, which is pretty nuts. But like I think it just started around that time because when I came home, that's when I had time to work on other stuff, be it working with writers on scripts, you know, or doing sizzle reels, 
um, pitch pitch reels for these things. That stuff that happened between seven and three a.m. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hats off to and you. that's just stuck. I mean, I, I go to bed now at two, three in the morning every day. It's really crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's probably not healthy, that's but your body just gets used to it. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think some people do well with less sleep than others. I am, I am not one of those people, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back to, to the danger one, when did you start thinking about the story idea and why that story? Um, well, I started, I mean, the idea, I actually know exactly when that, when that happened. That was the winter break from 2014 to 2015. Yes. Um, Basically, what happened? I think I just came off pitching another project that also didn't gain traction. And the funny thing is, like every project that I pitched, and, and at that time I actually had managers, so uh, we were able to go out and really pitch to the production companies and the studios. Um, but every new thing, pitch, feature, script, uh, every new pitch or feature script that I that I put together, they just get started getting smaller and smaller you know like more contained scaled down because we were always like well if we make it cheaper we might be able to get it made so after that last pitch and i think it was for like uh oh yeah that was for a horror film uh, that took place in a school so when that didn't gain traction uh i was like okay we'll have to come to come up with like something that's even smaller what's the most contained thing i can um i can think of and um, I mean, Danger One, there's multiple reasons how that came to be, but the original idea, the treatment I wrote over that winter break, the entire movie actually took place in the ambulance. Like they, they barely ever left the vehicle. Um, obviously, once Stefan, the writer, came on board, you know, that, that got a little bigger. We it got scaled up quite a bit. But um, the intention was let me come up with something that's you know like lifeboat just one small location and we can shoot the whole thing um, there and get it done cheap um, in terms of story I mean I know you mentioned the economy that was one of the um, that was sort of like what gave us the context because because um, the movie is sort of about like you know capitalism and like working men and working women struggling to get back on their feet um, in an economy that's sort of, you know, rigged against them. Because we, we wrote this in the aftermath of the Great Recession. So it had ended, I think, like two years officially ended. <laughs> officially, yeah. Yeah, well, for a lot of people, it hasn't ended to this day, you know, which is why even though we wrote this all, all these years ago, it's as relevant now, clearly, as it was back then. Um, but during, during that time, you still read a lot about, like, um, uh, yeah, people just struggling, you know, like people having to work multiple jobs, still not being able to feed their families, not knowing how to pay their rent. Um, at the time, uh, you know, I lived in downtown and I saw like just on, on my parking lot outside how there were more and more vans of people with people, entire families living in these vans. Um, so even though the recession had ended, um, people were still struggling and we um, and, and there was also like this anger still that that you know this system or the, the elite if you will were allowed to create this misery in the first place um, and so that was kind of like the foundation for the story because the film the, the characters they all um, they all struggle like that you know and like the film you can always kind of 
like to us it was kind of cathartic to see that this is a story about like the little guys being fed up and pushing back against this system that you know doesn't allow them to succeed i mean they they steal money from this one percenter who refuses to pay taxes you know it's very much this it's almost a bit like a revenge story if you think about it then some of the other things that kind of influenced the story was uh, my dad before he retired he was a doctor um, he uh, he worked in a hospital when I was little but then he like opened his own practice so uh, and the practice was literally attached to the home the house I grew up in so I was I was raised in this like you know this world of late night emergency calls and 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 you know the the doctor jokes, because a lot of people that work in the metal community have a, a really twisted sense of humor. <laughs> Things get dark very quickly. Um, so I was raised in that, and uh, I've always liked movies, even if they weren't very good. I've always liked movies that took place in that world. You know, like the what's it called, the the, the coma with Michael Douglas. You know those things, um, and. Um, so yeah, I thought it'd be cool to just kind of use that and tell a story within that. Um, then the other thing is like, I, and I didn't realize that until we were like halfway through the script, but it started to feel to me like it's a bit of a father and son story, even though the two main characters are not actually related, but the dynamic that they have in their relationship is very similar to a father and a son. And in general, I respond to those kinds of stories um, but uh, yeah, you know, you've got one guy who sort of takes the other guy under his wing or thinks he's taking him under his wing. He's, gonna, he's, he's the only one qualified to turn him into a man, you know, teach him how to be a man. While the other guy, the younger guy, tries so hard to not turn, to not become like, the, you know, his, his mentor. And um, in the end, he does because that's like, you know, like father, like son. Yeah. It, it's funny because like over the years, I've... Um, I've totally turned into my dad. Personality-wise, I do a lot of things now that, that, that my dad did, which, you know, as a kid, you never think that's gonna happen. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, I, I'm, I'm, my, I'm, my, I'm, I'm my father's son, for sure. <laughs> that's interesting. I always find that dynamic fascinating when you have sort of an older one attempting to sort of save the younger one, but it turns out in the end, it's the younger, what is perceived as weaker one has actually saved the other. I've seen that happen in life as well. It's just interesting. Yeah, and actually, um, I mean, one of my favorite things about the film is that there, so one, the younger guy's called Eric and the older guy's called Dean. Dean's, uh, Tom Everett Scott uh, plays him. Their character arcs are kind of opposite. Um, you know, while, while Dean starts out as, um, you know, like he's, he's only concerned about like, you know, putting a dollar in his pocket while Eric is very much like the kind of guy who wants to do the right thing. Um, but over the course of the film, Eric starts to become like Tom Everett Scott's character, like Dean. He, he inherits some of Dean's strength, some of his courage, some of his baltiness too, and also some of his um, moral flexibility. While Dean becomes, he starts to develop 
an actual conscience. He starts caring about other people. So it's like their arcs really are just kind of like they, they mirror one another, which I've, I've always liked. Which is also why I know like the ending scene of the film seems very bittersweet, you know, because of how Eric's arc ends and he's now he's sort of become the thing that they revolted against in the first place. I actually think there's also a lot of hopefulness in it because if you look at Dean, the Tom Everett Scott's character, where he ends up, um, you know, he's got a moment of redemption. Like he took a long, hard look at himself and what he's allowed himself to become. Um, went and looked for, you know, some of that like humanity again that he's lost along the way. And then, um, yeah, he redeems himself. And I think that's something that I would like people to take away from the movie too. Like there's, it's not, there's hope. There's hope at the end of this film. I wonder if the recession did that to a lot of people. They kind of gave people different character arcs in real life because those that were maybe embittered found something else because whatever sort of got them to that place made mm -hmm. them have to change and then vice versa. Yeah, I mean the film, the film definitely is, um, you know, on a deeper level, a bit of an indictment of capitalism and, and you know, just the, what they call the American dream. I mean, Eric, the, the younger character, um, like I said, he and, and he didn't he didn't take this money. Uh, they steal money, and he eventually um, does keep it. But he doesn't keep it out of greed, like some uh, some of the other characters in the film, the bad guys. Like he keeps it because he just wants to provide security uh, uh, he, to his family. He wants to make their future a little less uncertain. Um, but the only way he learns. He learns that the only way to do that is if you actually, yeah, if you if you become um, morally a little bit more flexible and like he 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 realizes he just has to take what he needs, um, even if it's not his and even if he knows it's it's not right, you know. And again, he doesn't do it out of greed, but just just more for survival. Did you see Margin Call? A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. So so again, sort of this. Same thing, a recessionary sort of look, or a look at just what people have to do to sort mm -hmm. of, you know, these Machiavellian tactics. And it sounds like though with, with your film, it's not as much about a Machiavellian tactic, it's more about... Well, I think that film was very much about the people, um, like that was more like the upper middle class, upper class, right? I mean, a, a, the, sort of a lot of those people that kind of cost this. I, 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 even the stuff that I'm working on now, I, I like stories that, about, that are about, you know, just like, I don't know, this is a, The worker. Yeah, yeah. exactly, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Right, like right. the people that don't, they, they just wanna, you know, live a good life. Um, so I don't even think I'd be, yeah, I just, I just respond more to those types of stories. And I mean, this is, a, it's a working class movie. It's a, a, a movie about, you know, uh, yeah, people struggling to to just get by. Right. Yeah. And you shot the film in Vernon, right? Which yes. is just right outside of of Los Angeles, of downtown, by the uh -huh. train station. Is that right? Um, well, it's it? uh, what is that? Um, I mean, it, it's like it's it's where all the warehouses are at. Like I think that the used to be the slaughterhouse district. Oh. Yeah, it's very industrial, and um, we we shot there on purpose because. Um, we wanted to make LA look very much like, we wanted to kind of give it a new look. Because um, I feel like a lot of movies that, and shows that take place in LA, they all kind of look the same and feel the same. So we deliberately went somewhere that looked very much not like LA. 
Um, also because the the fictional ambulance company in the movie, you know, they're it's not a good company. Like they have no money. They're they're not gonna. It's not the kind of company that can afford to open business in Beverly Hills. So like it felt very much like with what they have, yeah, they're gonna be in an area a little bit more like you know like Vernon. And it just gave it gave the film, um, yeah, a very unique look. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, where did you guys shoot this? This wasn't in LA, right? Yeah. But it's just, a, it's like five miles or something from I LA? mean, uh, at the time I lived in downtown, it was like a 10 minute commute oh, wow. for me. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And most of the shots are at night? Mostly night shots? Uh, yeah, the whole, the whole thing takes place um, over one night. Okay. Yeah, it but starts it, with mm -hmm. Eric going to work, beginning of his shift, the night shift, and ends with him coming back home in the morning. And so how many ambulances did you rent, or you just had a few external, the interior, um, of course, is... No, we, um, well, we, there's two in the movie, and we had, we had two. So how did that go? They, it was obviously our budget was pretty low, so we're not, like, we had to go look for an ambulance that we could afford. Um, so I think they found one ambulance how did that go? Yes, you know what? One we rented um, at, um, there's all these places in LA that rent out uh, picture vehicles. So they found one that kind of looked like what we were going for and that was affordable. And then the trick was we had to find one that looked like it and we had to buy that one and then repaint oh. it. So um, yeah, it would look the same because it's the same, they're at the same company, but also because occasionally one ambulance would stand in for the other ambulance. Like they, you know what I mean? Like one ambulance, um, if one ambulance was being used elsewhere, the second ambulance had to pretend to be the main ambulance. So they really had to look alike. So I think they found one in uh, somewhere upstate and uh, yeah, from a private owner, they drove it down, repainted it. And that was our main ambulance. And actually, um, I forgot who, someone in the crew ended up buying it at the end of the shoot. Oh, and he's, he's actually driving around in it. It's like his main vehicle. I think it's because he goes to like a lot of festivals and stuff. So it's, it's, this is like his van now. How cool. Yeah, but it still has all the, the color, everything is still on it looking exactly like it does in the movie, which is pretty funny. And the interior shots are all an actual ambulance, or you've recreated it in another room? Oh. Uh, no, that's 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 the ambulance. I mean, we um, all the interior stuff we we shot. Um, so you know, like how in the movie, a big chunk of the movie takes place in the garage, the the Turbo Elite garage, which is their like headquarters, which was uh, just this old warehouse in Vernon. So what we did for all the interior sh um, scenes of the actual ambulance, even when they're driving around, we parked that ambulance inside that warehouse. And we put, like in the old days, rear projection screens around the windows. And then we had a, a there's a bunch of people on the side with like, you know, just shaking it. And that's how we shot all the driving that takes place inside. Even when you see the outside was done on that, that crappy hot, um, fly infest at Warehouse in Vernon. Tom, one of your scripts that you had back in from the 2006 era on ended up getting you a manager, is that right? Mm -hmm. That was in, a, I think, 2012. Um, so it was a few years into um, making stuff. The, the way I got the managers, um, 
Well, I probably have to rewind a little bit. I went to uh, USC. You know, in film school, any film school, you meet a lot of people, make a lot of friends, and they're kind of like the ones that help you make stuff once you're out of school, that get you jobs, and that also connect you. So in 2012, I was um, with a, a writer and a producer friend. We were working on this um, script for a, a teen conspiracy thriller that took place in Napa. Oh, nice. And while it was being written, I was... Um, again kind of producing um, uh, like a, a fake trailer to help pitch it to help show what this movie would look and feel like um, and I th we it was half uh, half of it no not half of it probably a quarter of it was like a so-called scriptomatic so we would just like use we would rip shots from existing movies and then the other uh, 75% we would actually shoot so we, we uh, you know got locations hired actors we, we wrote the script for a trailer and uh, Yeah, we went out Shot those elements and then cut it all together Color timed it so it looked all very consistent had it mixed at a friend's uh, post-production house and so we had a, a trailer um, that looked uh, a lot of people were actually confused they thought it was this was a movie that had already gotten made um, also, uh, a, one of the actresses in the movie was Amy Teagarden, who, um, before she became a well-known actress, she was actually um, the lead actress in my thesis film at USC. So that's how she and I met, became friends. So she uh, agreed to be in this trailer just because people recognize her. So when the trailer was sent out, you know, we got a little bit more attention than we would if it was just, um, if she wasn't in it. And then, yeah, so one of my friends from USC was friends with a manager. Uh, he sent this manager the trailer. They're like, yeah, this looks like something we can get made. And uh, that's, how, that's how I got my first, my first uh, managers. And that's actually also how I met the writer who wrote Danger One, Stefan, because they were managing him at the same time too. So even though that teen conspiracy thriller never got made, um, it eventually led to Danger One getting made, just because it introduced Stefan and I, and we became friends and realized, you know, we, we worked together well. Tom, because you're an editor, do you think that having a sizzle reel as part of most of the ideas that you come up with has been sort of your core way of getting people attached, or can you just talk about that process? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's essential. As, as a matter of fact, at this point, like. The, the moment I have uh, like a kernel of an idea, I immediately start thinking of what's the sizzle for this. And oftentimes I have the sizzle ready for um, a script long before the script is ever done. As a matter of fact, I have sizzles for scripts that we never finished. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, people reading scripts, everyone will um, imagine it completely differently. I mean, there's people who read Danger One, the same draft, but they didn't picture it as a funny movie. But the movie we made is an action comedy, you know, but that same script could have been made as a very straightforward, serious film. And I'm sure a lot of people um, read it that way. But to be able to then send along a sizzle reel, a three minute short that says, this is the tone. So when you read the script, imagine it like this. You know, and you have actors in there, so they, 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 there's faces that they can put on these characters when they read them. Um, 
and again, the script could also, the film you make could look a million different ways. You know, it could be, it could look the way Danger One does now, you know, very energetic and vibrant and colorful, or it could have been a lot more grounded and have more of a, you know, a, a documentary isn't the right word, but more of a, yeah, more of a grounded look, you know, very muted. But again, no one knows that until you, and you can describe these things, but then again, you're using words like vibrant can mean a million different things. So it's just best to like, here, just check this out. Give, give this a look. This is what the movie's gonna be like. And honestly, I think Danger One, and that's how we got it made, because when um, the, the financiers, what they responded to, yes, was the, the idea, because they were looking for something um, that kind of takes place in one night and like about characters that are starting to deal with a, this big moral dilemma. But they saw the sizzle and their reaction was like, oh, this looks like pain and gain. That's what they said. And that's how, that's, that's, that's what made them pull the trigger. Also, um, it just shows, especially if you haven't done a movie before, it shows that you can shoot something, you know, because um, you're like, you can be like, look, I know I haven't made a movie, but I just did this. And it's a short film. And even if it's a, a, a partial scriptomatic where you're borrowing some stuff, if you make some of these elements yourself, it just it, it shows that you know how to tell a story. As a matter of fact, even if it's a full scriptomatic and you're just editing stuff together, it also shows that you can tell a story because you knew what you what you needed to look for when you were, you know, assembling these shots. You just didn't shoot them yourself. It just shows that you know a little something about how to put a piece together um, that's not on the page but an actual visual thing. And Danger One is your first feature, mm -hmm. but you've edited so much content that I'm sure it probably, or I'm just assuming, I shouldn't assume, but th that it was fairly easy or no? Well, if uh, the, the last, the, so since we, since I finished Post on Danger One, I've put together two new sizzle reels. I didn't shoot those though, so they're just scriptomatics. Those I can now do in like a week, <laughs> you know, just because it's, I have everything, I have sort of a pipeline for these things now. It's just a matter of finding the right footage, but I, yeah, it can be done in a week. The sizzle for Danger One, since it didn't use any borrowed footage, it was all shot. I mean, that's a legit production then. It's, we had to, I mean, yeah, that took probably like two months of prep, because you're casting, you're location scouting, um, you know, you're trying not to spend a lot of money, but you're you're putting together a full-blown production. I mean, they had a full crew. We had, you know, trucks. We had, um, yeah, I mean, it was like a, a real short film production. So th that's going to take a little longer. But that's where it comes in having uh, editing, you know, during the day right. allows you to kind of finance that stuff. I'm just not putting that money in the bank, you know, <laughs> but um, it's you're just reinvesting it. Sure. But so yeah, that, that, that probably overall with post and everything, because we had to do ADR on it, it got color time, that probably took like four months until it was done. But then again, you're not wasting time because the script's still being written simultaneously. Would you be able to tell us how much it cost to produce the whole they, sizzle they reel? Got, yeah, they, they got more and more um, expensive. When, you, when you're straight out of school, everyone's so eager, no one has a job, you know? <laughs> everyone's so eager to like be on a set and like make stuff. So the very first sizzle, the one for that teens conspiracy thriller with Amy Teagarden, we had like a two-day shoot. We had a pretty decent cast. We had a full crew. That I was able to do for, um, I think, $2,000. Wow. 
Oh. Yeah, I know. I, I wish that was still <laughs> the case. Danger one, the sizzle happened a few years later. At that point, everyone has really good jobs. You know, people are shooting, they're, they're um, crewing on telev television shows. They're making a lot of money. So it's like for them to come out, take time off and be on my set, you, you have to pay them something. So the, the, the sizzle for Danger One was just a one day shoot with a smaller cast, but it, uh, it was eventually like $10,000. And plus, yeah. Nap, were you in Napa when you were filming the team? The, no, no, oh, no. We just okay. cheated that in uh, LA. Okay. But the, okay. the Danger One sizzle, we actually also shot. Oh, we shot that not in Vernon, but in in South LA. That's right. But yeah, for that one day, once you know, you, once you're paying real, real rates, it's going to add up, add up quickly. So the sizzle reels are obviously cheaper. That's why those are attractive. Um, and I think now that I've made a film, I don't have to prove so much that I know how to work behind a camera. It's easier for me to just do a sizzle because I could just be like, yeah, guys, I made a movie. Check that one out. But before you have a movie, no one knows that you can do it. Um, so, yeah, I think like, it was, it was $10,000 well, well spent. <laughs> But you're not paying for editing, right? Because you're editing That's it? That's right. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I would imagine yeah. that cuts the price down a lot. It, it does, yeah. That's great. And you're then paying everyone else. How long are these sizzle reels, the, the end result of the sizzle reel? Um, if it's just a ripomatic, I kind of stick to, I mean, I make these things really, those play like an actual trailer. Um, so they're, they're the length of a trailer. Um, so they're a minute and 40. The thing is like people's attention span in this town, especially if they're producers or executives, is like that. So if it's long, they're just going to tune out. So you might you, you want to cut to the chase real quick. You want to you know get to selling your hook within the first like 10-15 seconds. But the sizzle for Danger One that was long. So that was it was I think a little over three minutes. Only because it has a, a short form. It felt it played more like a short film. But in hindsight. Um, there's probably a whole bunch of people that did see that and tune out just because they don't have time. If I was shooting one of these again, I'd make it shorter. And usually when I, um, now that when I make sizzle reels and I work with producers on them, their note usually is like, yeah, just um, trim out like 10 seconds. You know, it's like, you want to make these things short. So what's your, what would your advice be to a first time filmmaker on making a sizzle reel? They want to try it. They want to show people that they're serious. They want to show people their talent. They have the original cast that they plan to use attached. Um, what, what are some of your tips? Well, I don't know if you want to have your cast attached and if, because, no? well, it depends on the budget, I guess. But if you're like with Danger One, where the movie had, you know, our budget wasn't high, but it, it cost, you know, some, you don't want to come in with people attached because the people financing the movie and the producers, they'll have their own ideas. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, even, even in terms of crew and producers, like um, on Danger One, none of my regular guys were working on this movie because the crew was, uh, um, was brought in by the producers. Ah. So you really, all, you, you really just kind of want to sell the story and yourself. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, honestly, the biggest thing is, like I said, just, I mean, stru structure these things the way you would a movie. Like, you don't want your movie, the story in your movie, to get started at the one hour mark. You know, they say, have the inciting incident happen at 20 minutes. So kind of your trailer, minute and 40 seconds, structure it like that. Just get to the hook quick so people don't turn it off because they have a million other things to do. Um, 
and um, yeah, and I think I mean my, the, the sizzles that I and that's just again because I'm a bit OCD and a perfectionist. <laughs> like they, um, like we made them look like polished. I mean, we went in and really made sure that they they sound exactly like a real trailer. Sometimes I even had a, a, a composer friend of mine compose music for them. You know, we, we some of them we mixed professionally, some of them we um, professionally. These are, these are just calling in favors, people that I met in, in film school. Um, color timed them professionally, just so people are like, wow, this looks good. I want to I make a film that looks exactly like that. To be honest, like the sizzle reel for Danger One looks as good as the film itself. Yeah. So do you think the difference between the $2,000 sizzle reel that you did for the, the Napa Valley teen horror one mm -hmm. and the and Danger One is because you were using people that weren't students, that weren't just out of school, that were looking for credit or whatever? That was the main difference in the price? Um, yeah, it was just it basically how, it, it comes down to how far removed are you from film school. Because a lot of people that worked on that sizzle also worked on the Danger One sizzle. But it was just four years later in mm. their careers and uh, you know they, they've got a, a family to feed and, a, and, and rent to pay so it's like sure. yeah it'll be easier right out of school but then also like four years in most of us are making more money than you know like then the higher budget doesn't hurt quite as much when I did the two thousand dollar sizzle reel that was a lot you know because I, I was young and I didn't make a lot of money so it's not um, it, it, it costing later down the road is slightly offset by the fact that you are also deeper in your career making more and you're a little able, you're more able to actually finance some of this stuff even on um, like when it comes to like a-list directors on big movies you always um, you always hear about like how they shoot sizzles I know that um, which movie was this for oh it was for the they were gonna do a Daredevil remake a couple years ago, and I think the director of one of the Twilight movies. So that's A-list, right? I mean, he's famous and makes a lot of shoots like Game of Thrones. I think he spent like what was that, like sixty thousand dollars on a sizzle that he shot um, just to show what his vision is. So a lot of people are doing that just to show studios and producers what they can do. Um, and like I said, these things—if you want to do it right—it's gonna it can add up. What's the biggest, uh, aside from being your own editor, which I know saves a lot and, uh -huh. and gives you a lot more creative control, uh, what are some other things that could save someone money uh, to make a sizzle reel? Um, well, I mean, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just basically, it's, it's working with, you know, and that's where you're, if you went to film school or you've met people in the industry, if you work in the industry, or just your friends. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the th once there's not a lot of places at some point where you where you can save because things just cost as much as they do in this town, you know. I'm trying to think. Um, well, and I guess as an editor, I mean, I I do my own sound because in in especially in reality TV, you kind of have to do your own sound. You don't do in scripted. Um, you you sort of make your own music. We don't make, but you you're given a music library, so you're cutting music. Um, you know, sort of scoring with the elements that you're given. Um, so I'm not just editing picture. As an editor, you don't just edit picture, but you also have a bit of a, you know, how to deal with sound. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. This, I, I wish it could be done cheaper, you know, for myself too. Once your sizzle reel is 
final and you have it where you want it, what is then your approach to getting it out there, to getting managers and agents to see it? Um, well, back before I had all that, it was really just, um, I mean, I would just send it to my friends from, from film school, you know, because everyone was at a certain stage in their careers and had made their own um, contacts in the industry. And um, in film school, you kind of, you know, you kind of bond in the trenches when you're shooting stuff together. So it's like you, you want to help one another out. So at that point, yeah, I would just send it out to, um, to friends from film school. Once you have managers, they will start sending it out because they can reach uh, past, you know, the gatekeepers at uh, production companies and, and, and studios and stuff. But even at that point, I would still have my friends send it out because they have producer friends and stuff. You, you wanted as many people as possible to see it because people also start talking about it. You know, like when, when the, the conspiracy thriller, when that sizzle went out, um, I was getting emails from people at agencies because they had seen it. I had no idea how it how it popped up in those offices, but it did because like if something's good, you know, it'll travel. Um, and now that um, I've been doing this for ten years, I mean, even now, I'm, it's these things go to friends. Of um, there's different producers I work with, so like they send it out. You know, I, I don't think that's ever going to change. I feel like I'm sending it to the same people every time. What if someone doesn't, what if they didn't go to college and they still have a vision, they're making a film, how could they get it out there and they don't have a huge network of friends? Um, if you, for people that live in LA, for people that live in LA it's probably a little easier because inevitably you are going to meet people that work in the industry, even if you didn't go to film school. Um, if you live elsewhere, I honestly don't know. I mean, just because I've never lived elsewhere outside of LA, I don't know how to... Well, I mean, I guess it's easier now because you um, there's social media. Um, you, you can put it on YouTube. I mean, there's you, know, you, you read about stories of people getting their... You know, they shot a, a trailer somewhere and then someone in LA saw it. I think the... the um, What's his name? The director who did the latest Spider-Man movie. Fede Alvarez, or no? Uh, he did. Uh, he did Cop Car, but before Cop Car, oh, yes. he did a movie called, uh, I think it was Clown. It was a horror film. And that horror film started because, and he's not from LA. He he In shot. Colorado, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So he he just shot a fake trailer, um, and somehow, for for a clown horror movie, and somehow Eli Roth saw that and then he executive produced the feature film for that so and i don't know how roth saw it but i mean that's a that's something that just kind of went went viral you know um i don't know how you make something go viral but if it's if it's good you know <laughs> it, it, i guess that just happens that's the million dollar question yeah. yeah but i mean i think it's easier now than it was 10 years ago just because the world's become so small you know if you put it out there someone will see it I would imagine life is easier to make a film when you do have that sort of alumni association or just people that you know. Oh yeah. Do you think that's maybe 50% of the reason to go to film school? I mean, I know this is going to be, people aren't going to like me for saying that, but not everybody well, can afford it and not everybody wants to take loans out it. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with doing that, but, but do you think that's like a huge part of why going to a good school is important? Is that I mean, camaraderie and that... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I might get an angry call from USC, and I love USC, but um, I think that's the main reason, honestly. Because um, I think it's like you learn um, any film school you go to, and again, I went to LACC first, which is, you know, it's a public school, and it's 
um, especially if you're a, a, a resident in the, of the state, you're, it's, it's cheap as hell. And you're, you're learning the same, you're using the same books. And, and I, some of the teachers I had at Los Angeles City College, they were film teachers at UCLA, which is one of the country's you know, uh, most prestigious film schools. And they were just teaching classes at LACC just as a second job. So you're getting, you're learning the same thing there than you learn at a more expensive school. But also like by the time, just because I, I was such a film geek, by the time I went to film school, you know, I had read a million books about it. So like, I don't think there's not a, just in terms of like a technical on a technical level, there's not a lot you learn at film school that you can't learn out of books. You know, the, 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 the most valuable thing I got out of USC is just, um, yeah, I mean, it's the network. And I know you get to shoot stuff at film school, but like you can shoot stuff on your own, you know, these days. Yeah. Now with digital and everything. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have been able to shoot sizzle reels. I don't think I would have gotten managers. I don't think I would have met the right writers. I don't think I would have gotten a film made if I hadn't met um, people at film school. And even though they might not be directly connected to this film, you know how like one thing leads to the next and that's just how you, I feel like most people that I work with these days, if you connect it back, it will lead to someone I went to school with. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like it can't be done. Uh, you, you can still make a film and, and not have gone to film school, but the, the having that support system is what it really brings you in some Yeah, I mean, that's my experience. So I, I don't know. I mean, I know people outside of LA have made films. They've never been to film school and they just kind of use their local resources. You know, so it's, it, it can be done. Um, and again, these days it doesn't cost as much as it did when I, uh, when I got out of school because, I mean, now you can shoot a film on your iPhone, you know, and people do it. When I got out of school, you had to rent, you know, the, a camera that was $1,000 a day so it's it's a lot easier now to make stuff and i think that's that's the most important thing like don't don't wait around you know like don't like even if you went to film school go make stuff you know don't don't wait and hope someone's gonna come and ask you for a script like just create stuff and, and put it out there you know and if it doesn't click just make something else what do you love about being a director it's a good question i mean this 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 might sound cheesy but um and I've, I've, I've said this before, like it kind of, like you, how should I, how should I start this? Um, it, it, it kind of goes back to just the experience of me being 13 and seeing something so completely awe-inspiring as Jurassic Park. Um, and again, like that, if, the, if that film hadn't been made, my life would have been completely different like if I hadn't seen that movie like that Saturday afternoon like put me on a very specific path in life if that hadn't happened I would have not moved halfway across the world I wouldn't have gone to USC I wouldn't I wouldn't have met uh, you know hundreds of interesting people here in LA I wouldn't be speaking English 24 7 but it, you know I would be speaking German um, and I would have never made this movie as a matter of fact none of these people that I met on this movie would have ever met each other. It's just insane how like this snowballs just because someone made a movie. Um, and I'm not saying I'm gonna make Jurassic Park because that's absurd, because <laughs> you know, it's so good. Um, 
But the idea, and maybe that's just me being sentimental, the idea that something like a movie, uh, you know, that it's like that someday somewhere on in this world, some kid might see the thing you've made and respond to it in a certain way for whatever reason, and then decide to like pursue a certain path in life. That's pretty wild, you know. I mean, you're you're like to affect someone's life like that with something like a movie you know we're not it's not brain surgery but like i just like and again maybe this will never happen and it's just me being sentimental but i just i like that this that this could happen you know um yeah and i think like i said before um just because my life is very structured and organized on normal days you know there's um there's a routine to to um, to direct and to be on set. It yanks you out of that routine, and um, you know you kind of just get thrown in the deep end of the pool. And it's exciting, you know, it's thrilling. Also, because so many things could go wrong. Um, again, it just it just kind of feels like you're uh, you're parachuting out of a plane. You know, it's. It's like a little adventure, and you know, even on this film, there there was um, like on any production, there was moments where there was a lot of tension and people, you know, bumped heads. But I would always tell them, it's like, you guys, we could be sitting in an office right now, you know, do nine to five and then go home. We're in Vernon, crawling around in this creepy neighborhood, telling a story. Like, how amazing is that, you know? And, and oftentimes, like that's what people it, it will click with people, and they're like, yeah, you're right. Like this is, it's like, and every day is so different, you know, like there's no day that's just like the other one because you're at a new location, there's new actors, you're doing a, a new scene. That's just an amazing job, you know? It's not, I don't even look at it as a job, it's just, um, yeah, it's just, you, you, you just feel very alive doing that. It's like, you feel like, my God, I'm, you're, now you're living life, you know, because it's so the opposite of routine. And is it to the sense of possibility that everything could totally fail and there's that challenge of trying to keep it from not failing? It's almost like a game. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think maybe when I say you feel alive, maybe that's just the anxiety of like, oh my God, everything could go wrong, you know? But um, yeah, it's just, it, it's like, you just feel very awake, you know? Um, I mean, you obviously don't want it to go wrong, sure. but um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, look, I look at it as... Uh, like a little adventure. So then on the flip side, what do you dislike about being a director? Um, I mean, I guess, I guess it's the, and as we've addressed it before a little bit, it's the, it's, I guess it's the waiting game. It's the stuff between the directing where it's just like, you know, you're getting your stuff out there. You're hoping uh, it's going to click with, with someone. Um, and it's a lot of waiting, like, as a, you know, again, because people take, you know, weeks to get back to you. So it's um, once once the ball gets rolling, um, it's the most awesome thing. It's just the in-between, you know, because um, especially as freelancer, which freelancers, which is what this is, you're always and I, I know a lot of actors and, and editors, they all f feel the same way. You think you're never gonna work again every time you're not working. You know, you're like, you're like, this is the last time. I'm never gonna get another job. So it's like the the downtime is no fun, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's you try to fill that 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 time with like 
creating new stuff, getting things ready. So like when you, when you like meet that next person that wants to make something, you have things to show, you know. I've heard some people say they like that not knowing, that in between. Because you know, if, if someone has had a nine to five job, it's like an endless, just calendar full of you know exactly what's going to happen and oh, pointless yeah. meetings and meetings about meetings. When you have a nine to five <laughs> job, you mean the, the downtime then? No, when you don't have that. If, if you've ever, oh. some people enjoy that not knowing. There, there's something very thrilling about, even though it's scary, there is uh -huh. something, you, so you're saying like it's, a high, even for the- It's similar, I guess, then, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you don't, yeah. there, there's like a sense of possibility, there's a sense of unknown and I don't know. But, but, but also, that's true. But at the same time, when you're on, when you're actually making it and you're on set, like there's there's forward forward movement, in, a, in when there's downtime, even when you're making stuff, there's not necessarily any of that. You know what I mean? Because you might be down for two months, and at the end of those two months, you're at the same place you were two months before. Once you get on a set and you're actually making a movie, um, two months later, you have something like something got made. You know, so it just feels like um, yeah, there's some forward momentum, like things are happening, things are being made. Yeah, I like being productive. <laughs> you know? At the end of the 23 day shoot, um, when you wrapped, what was your, when you were driving home from the whole 10 minutes from the set or, or wherever you were, how did that feel? Oh, it's, it's funny because I talk about this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really weird. Um, just because like, I mean, it was actually an emotional drive home because it's the first time, it was the first time in like two months that things slowed down for me to be like, oh my God, did this just happen? Um, it, you know how like life is like a series of like milestones and it's not that many, you know, like for me, um, moving to LA was one of them, you know, for other people getting married, having children, getting, you know, there's a handful of these milestones and like, for me, since since uh, I was fifteen or thirteen, like this had been my goal, and oftentimes, you know, I was quite I was obsessing over it, and like uh, I, I'd say I, I probably sacrificed you know a lot just to really focus on this, um, and then for it to, you know, f what is what was that like? Pretty much twenty years later, for that to actually happen. Um, it was like this weird feeling of calm because like all of a sudden like everything kind of while it was 20 years of like you know you have your eye on the price and like every day you're working on that goal of getting a film made and then all of a sudden that film has been made and you're like oh my god now what like it was like on an emotional level it felt like life could now go into a you know a million different ways like, do, now that I've done this, do I actually want to make another movie? You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to do next? Well, before that, it was all like, make a movie, make a movie. You got to make that movie, you know? And now you've made one, and it just felt like, yeah, it was, it was almost, almost a, 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 a liberating in a really weird way, you know? But then you realize, oh my God, I actually have to finish this movie. <laughs> um, and then also you want to, you know, you, you, if... You've obviously learned a lot of things, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'd love to like apply all the lessons I learned on this movie on making another movie, and do better next time." You know, and then boom, you're back on that, <laughs> you know, that that straight arrow, um, you know, trying to make something else. 
but yeah, it was like it was like just you're like at the you know the, the what do you call like the eye of the storm for a little while. It's like everything just came to a standstill, and that was the that was me and the car driving home from Griffith Park in LA, because that's the last night we shot was in Griffith Park, and it was just driving home from Griffith Park to downtown, um, where yeah, it just kind of where I kind of realized like oh my god, like the thing I set out to do when I was 13 just happened. Yeah, because when you're making a movie, you're not thinking of anything, nothing like that. You know, you're just trying to keep up. That's pretty cool. Were you by yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Was it late at night or was it? No, it was actually the sun was coming up. Ah, yeah. okay. It was, it was, it was perfect because I was oh, like wow. driving through Griffith Park with the sun coming up behind the hills. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Mm-hmm. Are you able to talk about how you got financing for the film or? It's, it was pretty straightforward. Once we had the script and the sizzle done, actually I had pitched, okay, let me, let me, let me rewind. So when Stefan, the writer, and I started working on the script and the sizzle, I, uh, I had lunch with a producer friend of mine. And um, I just briefly gave him the log line and he's like, oh my God, that's awesome. When you're done, let me see it. And uh, we're, we're good friends, um, and uh, we go back a few years. Also someone I met through a friend that I went to school with, obviously. But so when we were all done, um, my managers sent it out to a few people, a few companies, and I sent it to my producer friend, uh, Chatty, and um, he loved it. And at the, how did that go? Because he, he had produced the pyramid for Fox. And so he was in Lebanon at the time that I sent him this stuff because, the, because uh, it was the Middle Eastern premiere of The Pyramid. And um, at the same time that he was there, this other movie called Pocket Listing also premiered in Lebanon. That one was produced by the people that ended up financing Danger One. So just because, and so because Chaddy, my producer friend, was in um, Lebanon at the time, he decided to go to the premiere of pocket listing and uh, that's how he met the financiers and they had just finished the movie and they were looking for something new and they told him what they were looking for and uh, Chatty he was like oh my god you should check this out I got a sizzle and a script and um, at that point like things things moved pretty fast like we probably spent two months on like rewriting the script for them and probably five months later we were we were on set yeah <laughs> so you put your own money for the sizzle, and then in the end, you got someone to finance the film. Yeah, yeah, completely. I wouldn't be able to finance on, a, on an editor's salary. You're not going to be able to finance a film this size. Yeah, oh, um, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know our budget wasn't high, especially for a movie uh, this ambitious, and you know it was a full union shoot. But uh, yeah, we we got it. We got it done. You think it being mostly interior of, or just in that one warehouse, whatever, with the, with the ambulance, that that saved a lot of money? So you're not doing too oh, many? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how we got this done with the time we had and, and the budget. Um, it's a bit of a, 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 a miracle. And in hindsight, I, I do think it would have been good if we had, and I know every director will tell you that, we had a little bit more. Um, but uh, we still had a whole lot of locations that we had to cover in 23 days. So for us to be able to spend the first, I think we spent the first two weeks of those 23 days in that warehouse. Um, 
basically covering everything that happens in the warehouse and also inside the ambulance was um, it's the only way to get that done. And then for the last, the next two weeks, that's when we kind of, you know, head out. But we still had so many locations where it's like you have a, a company move in the middle of the day. You're doing one scene here and then everyone gets in their cars and their trucks and you travel somewhere else. It's, yeah. But we also kind of, I guess a, a lot of the scenes we sort of shot right around that warehouse. The funny thing is like there's a scene in the movie where they're uh, getting rid of the firefighter's body in the manhole. Um, and we were looking for a location for that. So when we were in the warehouse, the warehouse was actually a terrible place. It's, we use it as a sound, sound stage. It should not be used as a sound stage because <laughs> once it, sound stages are soundproof, right? That makes them a sound stage. This is just an old warehouse, but what's worse is literally right next to that warehouse uh, was a recycling plant. Oh no. So we're shooting inside this warehouse and all night long, all day long, you've got like these contain trucks pushing containers with metal cans and bottles against our wall which is why a lot of the sound was unusable and we had to ADR a lot of it. Oh. But we were like, well, let's, let's, can we go take a look at this recycling plant? Maybe we can shoot there. And that's, we eventually ended up shooting a whole scene in there, literally just next door. Yeah. So you, when, when you found out that a lot of the sound wasn't usable, like how shocking was that? Maybe you knew that was coming? Yeah, well, we, I mean, we knew it was coming because we heard it on set. Once we, I mean, it was not a good situation to be in. You, you don't want to, especially on a low-budget film, you don't want to have to ADR half your movie. But a lot of the stuff that happened in there, yeah, we had to, we had to ADR in, in post. We had a long ADR schedule on this movie. How long did that set you back? Because you probably had an idea that it was going to be released by a certain time and then... Um, it was pretty, I mean, the thing is like our... Um, just because certain things didn't go according to plan during production, a lot of the... And this happens on movies, a lot of the post-production budget kind of moved into production. So when you then get to post-production, you have to be really smart. But things will just take longer because there's now less money to get it done than there was before. So our, um, our post, oh my God, how long, how long was that? Because we shot in 2016 in March and April. And I think the movie was done I don't know, it was, were we in post for like a year? Probably. Because at some point actors are also, you know, out of town shooting new things. So it's like you have to start scheduling um, around, you know, their availability. Just like the further removed that gets from the actual, from principal photography, the harder it gets. But yeah, I think, I think we were, I mean, we finished, we fin yeah, we finished the film towards the, in, in fall 2017. So yeah, post was, was a year. Did you have all the actors come back in for ADR? Um, all, all the major players? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, Tom Everett Scott was in for like four days. Yeah, even, yeah, Dennis O'Hare had to come from New York. We even had some ADR done in Lebanon because the actor was in Lebanon. So it's oh, like wow. he had to like visit a studio there and like, you know, he have a Skype call. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, pretty much all the, all the major players were in for a day, half a day, and some of the smaller ones. How does that work? So you've gone through the entire movie and you know from this time marker to this, the sound is horrible and this line needs to be done. So you're charting all that? Uh, well, yeah, I wasn't, but the, um, the, the post sound department, they were. 
they basically just, and that was the first time I had done that, they basically just give you a long list of like, here's the time code, here's the line, get this line. The good thing about it is it actually allows you to um, tweak the performance a little bit too. Now I know a lot of actors don't like ADR and I get it because you're in a booth and it doesn't feel, you know, being on set, there's the environment and you can really get into it. You've got an, uh, the other character in front of you, you're, you're having an actual interaction. It allows you to, you know, get out of your head and really just get, be in that moment. ADR, you're in a padded, tiny booth by yourself. Like the acting just becomes, the acting experience becomes very artificial. And you're just saying the line over and over again in a loop. So a lot of actors hate doing it. As a director or just for the, the post crew, it allowed us to like tweak certain performances, to like even out the tone a little bit, you know, take certain things down a notch, also to actually rewrite certain lines that were off camera. Um, because like scenes might have gotten cut. There's, uh, I think, a couple scenes that we never even shot. So it's like we had to like, um, you know, somehow get that content in, uh, which ADR is just the best way of doing that. So, you, you know, so it wasn't just replacing crappy production audio. It was also just tweaking the story. So then how, oh, okay, sorry. So how do you get that to, to, match, to match the room tone of the bad sound that's in Vernon that probably has a very distinct feel and then you have this pristine booth? How, how is that working? Um, well, I mean, they, during the mix, they, uh, well, we, there's an ADR, um, uh, an ADR editor. So they already do some filtering on it. And then during the mix, you make it, you try to make it sound as much as possible as production. Sometimes um, they just advise you to ADR the whole scene because they're like, we're never going to be able to match this. If you know what lines are ADR, you can tell. Like I hear, when I watch it, I'm like, mm, there's an ADR line right there. I don't know if audiences can, um, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not easy. <laughs> right, so you, you know it just because you know there was more reverb or whatever, you could just hear more of an yeah. echo or something. Yeah. And this was too crisp, but most of the time the audience will know. Well, now having done it, I can actually also hear it in, in other movies. I would watch a oh. movie, even on like big movies, you're like, that's an ADR line right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you have an editor's ear though, so. Well, I mean, in reality TV, well, I guess we do some of that, but it's, you know, it's not on this level. Like ADR in reality TV is talent will say it in their iPhone and record it and then like text it over. It's not done on the, it's not quite on the same level as, as on a feature. Sure. But then too, with a lot of reality TV, there's music playing almost the entire time. It seems like yeah. under the, under the, so, so that would probably filter a lot. Uh, yeah. Cause a lot of it is just wall to wall. Yeah. 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 But no, I mean, reality TV, you, you do quite a bit of wild lines, mm. you know, like have dialogue cheated underneath that, that people again, record on their iPhones or like during, during interviews and then you make it, you know, we make it sound like it's actually happening in scene. Yeah, like I said, not, not a lot of reality in reality TV. Sure, I mean, iPhone audio can sound excellent, so. Yeah, well, because audio on, in reality TV is already kind of crappy, so like the audio from the iPhone is gonna fit in nice, you Interesting. know. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna stand out that much. We had some viewers submitted questions come in before the interview. One of them is from Jake Nell. And Jake writes, is there something you wish you'd done differently starting out? And what was it? What would you have done differently? Yeah, I, guess, I mean, a lot of things, but then, um, but then like, I feel like those things still, <sighs> how should I say this? 
Like when I first got out of school, I did like I spent some of my um, some of the money I had available to shoot on like really trying to break into uh, the com like doing commercials and music videos. But again, it was it was the wrong uh, the wrong time for that because like music videos were going away, commercials uh, the budgets were dropping, and it was also at um, because the economy was economy was slowing down. There were a whole lot of like there were less commercials. So like the people that were doing those commercials were the veterans, just because there's I guess there's less work. So you, as as the new guy, you didn't really get a shot at it. So if you think just in terms of numbers, you know I'm like yeah okay I spent money on stuff that didn't really go anywhere. But then if you think big picture, I spent time on professional sets. I was shooting spec stuff or music videos with a real crew, real talent, real locations, and you just honed your skills. Also, that's on some of those projects, I started working with people that I then had worked with for the next, uh, you know, 15 years and still work with now. So it's like, I think in the end, like everything has its purpose, even if at first glance, it seems like a waste. Well, you know, I, I feel like if I hadn't spent money and time on doing that, even though it hadn't had a, an immediate effect on my career, I probably wouldn't be, I wouldn't have certain skills now, um, you know, if I hadn't done that. I mean, this is going to sound so cliche, but do you think things are set? Are, are you, do you, do you have the mindset of it was meant to be, or do you think people can change their destiny? And I know I'm, that's really, I'm really staring in another course, but you just kind of meant, you, you said something about that, that yeah. meant something to me. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really believe, um, in destiny. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I tell myself, work hard, do your best. I mean, there's a lot, there is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are not uh, in your control, but I don't think it's, it's a destiny thing, but it's just other people, you know, because again, especially um, if you work in this medium where you rely, where things are expensive, you know, you rely on a lot of other people. It's different than writing a book. I mean, you rely on other people, editors and stuff when you write a book. But in film, you rely on other people, you know, giving you money to make things or, or doing good work on, on projects that you direct or whatnot. Um, so those things are sort of outside of your control. And then, you know, you, you know, there will be, um, um, how should I say this? Like, you know, life might then, or your career might then take certain turns because of that. But um, yeah, I, I don't think there's, um, yeah, I'm not a very religious person and stuff, so I, I don't think there's a, a, a path that's laid out for you. Uh, and I kind of like that there's not, so you can, you know, you can try to steer it as, 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 as much as you, you can control. So you're right, so you don't have to kind of resign yourself, well, I guess it was meant to be, and then you don't have to do anything about yeah, it. But which yeah, which I know is comforting for a lot of people. I mean, I know that's the, the appeal of, um, you know, re religion, because if, if, like, you, you let, um, it might make certain things in life easier, you know, um, if it's up to a uh, God or whatever you believe in, destiny. Sure. But... Um, yeah, no, I, I just, 
try to work hard and, and control what I can. Sure. And not get too upset about the things I can't control. <laughs> that sounds like a good motto. I, yeah. I like that. We had a, a second question come in from Jake Nell, and that is, what are some routine things you do daily to keep improving yourself, and what are some of the things you would recommend incoming film students to focus on or be aware of while they study in college to be a screenwriter slash director? Well, I, um, well, I mean, one thing is obviously going to shoot, shoot as much as, as, as you can, you know, even if it's small stuff, because you're going you're gonna to learn a lot just doing it. Um, I actually, uh, and I only started this after the movie, because, I mean, there's, you learn little lessons on, up to this movie, I, most of my shoots were one day, two days, maybe three days. You learn things, you know, but once you do a full movie, you learn a whole lot of things. So I was like, oh my God, I can't, I have to make sure I don't forget any of this. So right after we wrapped, I started a list and um, it's a little file that's on my laptop, but that's called uh, Lessons Learned. Oh, nice. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a very long list. <laughs> it's just, yeah, things I learned on the movie and um, I realized, well, I should probably put other lessons I remember on here too. Um, just so, you know, to avoid uh, mistakes that I made or, um, you know, bad things that happened that could be avoided, make sure that that doesn't happen again. There's, there's a lot of that, so you kind of have to start typing it, typing it up. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is silly, but I mean, I just watch a lot of movies and, you know, it's, you, 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 you learn just watching other people do it. Well, you said something in the beginning of our interview that I thought was very interesting and, and it stayed with me, and that is just having worked in reality TV and getting notes from production companies that maybe weren't the kindest, that you just developed a thicker skin. And I think that th that goes so far here. And yeah. I think that sends a lot of people packing or it sends them back to a nine to five job. And it yeah. shouldn't, I wish it didn't. Well, I mean, you, uh, and I know a lot of people in LA are doing, they have a day job and they want to do something else. But I mean, the day job is really not a, like you shouldn't look at it as a waste because, and I did early on because I, I was like, I never planned on getting into reality TV or even editing. But again, like once you, I guess, get a little older, you know, um, there's so many lessons in those day jobs, if you want to call it that, that you can apply later on uh, when the thing you want to do, when you actually get to do that, or even just in preparation for that, you know? So, I, I mean, I, everyone who's, um, I don't want to say unhappy, but frustrated with being stuck in a day job, there's, you can really, I mean, don't force a, you know, don't force a positive attitude, but like there, you, you can have a positive attitude because there's, like I said, there's so many lessons in there that are going to apply in the other thing, especially since these things are related. But I guess even if they're not related, because again, you're a lot of the stuff we do in this town is people management, you know, that's interaction because again, it's, you're not, you're not just writing your book, you're interacting with, uh, on a film, you know, again, we had 160 people. So there's, you, you want to have some of these skills and you can, you can pick those up uh, anywhere. Like there's so much value in, in um, you know, what people do in their day jobs. But I meant too, not taking things seriously and, and, and being able to, because let's suppose you hadn't had some of that, maybe the slightest criticism would have sent you saying, you know what, I don't want to turn this sizzle reel, I don't want to send it out. But, but because oh, yeah. you had sort of, and hardened is a bad word, it's not what I mean, but the insides weren't as, as like, oh gosh, they didn't like my work. That, that's more what I was meaning, that, that like, I think that was actually a positive thing. 
Oh yeah, that's I mean, great. And I was like that. I mean, in film school, you know, p people and teachers will criticize your work. It's painful, mm -hmm. you know, because up to that point, no one had ever really done that. And even like I said, for me, the first few years in the real world, doing this, doing a, a job, which editing again is a creative job. Like it was, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but. Um, but yeah, like over time, you know, and I mean, you know, there's things, I'm not saying it's going to be super easy. I mean, it's never when someone criticizes your work, it's not, you know, you're, right. it doesn't give you joy, but <laughs> you're at least not going to pull out your hair or, or murder someone, you know. Right. And you're, yeah. and you're able to see it sometimes from like, okay, maybe they're right or maybe they have an agenda or whatever it is, or maybe they just don't like that style. Yeah. But then you're able to kind of keep going, whereas... I've seen a lot of people that are very talented, unfortunately, get unfair criticism and it just sends them home. Yeah. Well, and especially, I mean, uh, Stefan, the writer and I, we talked about this too. Um, and it's only something that really kicks in when you've done it. Movies, when they get criticized or reviewed, um, it's always the, the blame goes to the director and the writer. But once you've actually done it, you realize like, you know, there's so many people, you know, that work above your pay grade that, you know, will, for whatever reasons, be it uh, business or, or um, I mean, you know, it can be a million things, it can be ego, whatever. Um, there's, uh, I think especially as a writer and a director, you need to have thick skin because you get blamed for stuff that might not actually be your fault. But again, that's just part of the job description, you know, and you just kind of have to take responsibility, you know. Be that, you know, scenes that you feel like shouldn't be in, in your work or, or, you know, actors that you didn't feel like were right for the role. Um, I mean, you know, there, there's stuff in Danger One that um, my director's cut was actually shorter than uh, the theatrical cut because I had a different vision for certain parts of it. Um, but again, it's a collaborative medium and I'm not the one selling the movie. So, yeah, you just, you just have to be... Uh, you just have to be fine with that, you know. We had another question come in, and this is from Ani Martin. Ani writes, do you think making a short film as a teenager today would have a different set of struggles than it did when you were a teen? How did seeing your own work on screen make you feel as a teen? Yeah, probably, just because, I mean, the challenges are, well, I mean, it's a, there's, two sides to it, I guess. When I was a teenager making a short film, um, it, the difficult part was actually getting it made because you needed to, like this was pre-smartphones, you know, like this, this was like, as teenagers, I didn't even have a cell phone back then. None of us did. So it's like you needed to get your hands on a camera, on editing equipment, you know, and back then that stuff was expensive. So it's like, maybe you were lucky and your dad had it. Um, but uh, once you actually had that done and you were ready to show your film, that was a little easier just because not a lot of people were doing it. So it's like it was easier to get into film festivals because there's not a lot of mil there's not millions of people applying. These days, doing a short film, it's easier to make one because everyone has a smartphone and you can you can make um, again you can make short films and people do it on on your on your iPhone. The tricky part is just everyone does it you know so it's like it's just saturated so it's like getting into festivals and even just getting attention online you're competing with all those other people that now have easy access to to the the technical things that you need the technical tools
Um, so it's it's definitely it's it's different, a different experience, different challenges. Um, and wait, the second part was just like how how it feels to see it on the big screen. Yeah, when you were a teen. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, oh my God, it's been it was a long time ago. I mean, you know, it, I mean, it feels the same. It felt the same than it did seeing Danger One on the big screen. You know, I mean, we got a theatrical release, and I don't think you. You you ever kind of you, you you don't ever quite get used to that, um, but uh, well I, I think the um, <laughs> that's just because my mind is very analytical. Like when I do see it on the big screen, I don't think I can really lose myself in it because then I'm I'm starting to think oh if I had because on the big screen things look and feel different than when you see it on the little things on the little screens. So it's like you, in your mind, you're like, well, next time I got to do this different because on the big screen, it looks a certain way, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I've heard other directors say, or they, they hear something and they go, ooh, I wish I had done this way, but the audience doesn't see it at all or hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, on Danger One, I mean, some of the things on my lessons learned list have to do with the big screen, you know, where it's like, uh, make adjustments, make these adjustments next time because on the big screen, this doesn't look quite right or this is, uh, too shaky, too tight, too, the, the editing is too fast, mm. you know, because on the big screen your eye is always trying to keep up. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a different beast than, you know, on the, on the little screen for sure. When you were watching at the screening for Danger One, did you envision at some point that you were actually in Switzerland at that theater? Uh, no, because I'm a very self-critical person, so in my head I'm already making that list, you okay. know? All right, next time, don't do that. Yeah. So you couldn't even enjoy just pretending you were in a time warp and that somehow it was... No, no especially okay. if it's right after you finished it, you still see all the seams of the film. Like when you see a certain... Like it doesn't play like an actual movie to you. Because when you see a shot in your head, you immediately travel back to the set and that day and how we did five takes and it doesn't actually flow yet to you like a, a real movie or a real story. Uh, the funny thing is now when I watch stuff that I did years ago, it does because I'm removed from it and I don't remember all that. And it actually feels like, like, oh, this is like a real movie now. It's a real scene because you don't have all that context. But the first few times of watching your own work, um, on the screen is pretty nerve-wracking, <laughs> you know, just because of that. Because you're never, you're always like, that's not a real movie. <laughs> it's kind of like someone playing their own voice up back on a tape recorder. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't sound like yeah. that. And then, but our own ear doesn't, we don't hear ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, over, over time it gets better because you're removed from the experience. Sure. Yeah. I don't, with Danger One, I'm definitely not quite at that point yet. Yeah. <laughs> We have one last viewer question, and this is from Kelsey Tate. And Kelsey writes, what advice do you have about pacing and how to keep tension in more slower scenes where characters are only talking? I'm having trouble trying to structure talking scenes well together with action scenes in my novel. Well, I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, the talking scenes, I, I, I think at that point it comes down to uh, the performances. One of my favorite scenes in Danger One is actually a talking scene. It's not a funny scene, it has no action. Um, it's the one where Dennis O'Hare, his character, goes to the loft and meets Charles Shaughnessy's character and he eventually uh, murders him. But it's for two minutes, and I think it's, it even has, there's no cut in their whole conversation. It's just a close-up of Dennis listening 
to Charles Shaughnessy talking from, to him from the background, but um, just because they are they were so connected, that they're, because they're both amazing actors, um, the tension really just came from watching their faces. Even though, as a matter of fact, one of them isn't even talking; only one of them is talking. Um, but the tension, and actually, a lot of people say that that is one of their favorite scenes in the movie too. And it's just two people standing there talking and listening. But of how they delivered those lines and what you see in their faces when, you know, they always say the listening is as important as uh, how the other person says the line. Um, I think that's why that scene just kind of um, crackles, for lack of a better word, with, with tension. Um, then as pacing, um, I mean, I guess that's what, you know, as an editor, I kind of, like at this point, it's a little bit more of a subconscious thing. Like I'm really not, like I, I know when something doesn't feel like it's paced right. But um, yeah, I mean, in, in film, I guess it's, it's, you know, it's structure where like structure is important. Like you wanna, you wanna make sure your story, your real story gets going at, you know, at a certain time, you don't wait, have people sit around um, for too long. Yeah, I don't know. I, remember, I was just watching um, The Stepford Wives and the opening shot was something that was so similar for that time, just like the one scene and then they're traveling in a car and then cue the music and all like the, the opening credits. I kind of miss all that. Uh -huh. You know, it was so slow and it was like building up and you know, you played sort of the, the, the old theme music and I feel like it's, it's gotten so fast paced. Do you yeah. feel some of that pressure to, to make movies fast-paced or well, I mean, do you the, enjoy that slower pace? Um, well, I mean, Danger One is pretty fast-paced, but I mean, it's the pace is sort of motivated by the story. Um, I mean, I, I think like Danger One is almost like, I mean, I guess the whole aesthetic is almost a bit manic, you know, but again, on, on purpose, just because early on in the film, we were like, okay, well, we want to convey the experience of what is it like to work as a paramedic? Um, and I mean, that's, you know, you're literally, that's a literally a high speed job because you're sure. speeding all over the place. Um, you know, there's um, a lot of tension. It's a fast paced, a fast paced job with high stakes. So we kind of, that kind of dictated the pace of the film and, and even like how we covered scenes, like there's a lot of fast camera moves, a lot of fast editing, just to convey that feel. And later on, um, we use that same approach when things start to get really chaotic for the characters and, you know, it starts to escalate. The faster pace and the fast editing um, just kind of helps get that across and the fast camera moves and stuff. Um, so, I mean, I think the story dictates what your pace is. And again, like the scene with uh, the, uh, Dennis O'Hare and Charles Shaughnessy doesn't have the paramedics. It's a very different scene and it's very, very slow paced. Um, has barely any cuts for a big chunk of it. And again, it's just a story of that scene asked for that. Aside from Danger One, what's your favorite movie line? My favorite? Movie line. What's movie. your favorite movie line? What do you mean, like in? Two characters speaking, or just could be one character speaking to Oh, in the other, universe, in, just, uh, in, uh, in different movies? Any movie, yeah. Not, uh, not, not Danger One, but in just yeah. a classic film, a current film. Um, oh my God, just like a talking scene. Well, I mean, you know, one of the, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will 
say that there's you know in heat you have Al Pacino and De Niro sit in a coffee shop and talk for you know five ten minutes and it's as suspenseful as it could possibly be but again it's just and the coverage is so simple it's just two medium shots and two close-ups but you have two amazing actors connecting um, I mean that's that's one um, has there ever been a bad coffee shop conversation though if you uh, think about it coffee shop greasy diners have the best conversations in movies <laughs> that's true yeah <laughs> well I, I like those just because because um, I'm from Europe we don't really have diners like that so to me there's there's a, a few things that just to me um, feel very American and every time I go into one of them I still feel very foreign even though I feel like I've assimilated pretty well um, you know as, as a kid like when um, when you like when you when I thought America, I thought of the diner. You know, Bruce Springsteen was like I'm like that's what that's what America sounds right. like. Uh -huh. um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I I like those scenes probably just because of that. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to find like a really good sort of greasy diner in L.A. too because it, it there is something very nostalgic about those scenes and there's always an intense conversation where someone's whispering and there's a and then the waitress comes by and they have to stop and okay what'll yeah, it be yeah, you know and right. then and then they wait for her and you know and and it there is something that's very um intimate yeah you know because yeah. you kind of you have the feeling of like no one else is paying attention to me here so i can have this intense conversation well and even though they, those scenes on the surface look very simple they're they're not easy to do you know for 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 everyone, the actors, the editors, it's just because you're you're trying to keep people's attention in a scene where on the surface it doesn't seem like a lot happens. As opposed to, you know, something that's a little bit more animated um, and, and uh, you know, active, where a lot of things happen plot-wise, you know. Um, yeah, they, they can be... Um, I mean, I was for a while, I was worried about that scene before I shot it. I'm like, oh my God, this is like five pages of dialogue are people gonna like want to sit through this you know but then again you just have to trust your actors so there was something very appealing to that whole american experience for you still yeah mm -hmm. yeah, yeah i mean um i mean i feel just because i also haven't been in switzerland for a while i feel well actually let me let me let me take that back now and I'm not with not getting political, but now I feel a little bit more foreign than I did for the last ten years. Um, you know, just because in the news there's there's a lot of talk about um, people who are not from here, so you're just a little bit more self-aware. But um, other than that, I, I mean, I never had trouble, um, you know, assimilating in in LA. It happened pretty quick. Yeah. Also helps that they teach you English in Switzerland. So like when you get off the plane, you can actually have a conversation. <laughs> I just find it interesting that, you know, because if you've grown up in, in, I mean, LA doesn't really feel like that Americana sort of experience as much, Yeah. but, but to think that there's someone in another part of the world that looks at that, you know, the factory worker, and, you know, all the things that Bruce Springsteen and some of these yeah. movies that we're talking about with the, the greasy sort of diner and the, the sort of sad resigned person, you know, drinking coffee at the, you know, in the background. Uh, just feeling that that experience is calling to you whereas if you've grown up around it you yeah. might see something else you might see an Igmar Bergman film and think oh I want to be there or you know I, I realize that's Swedish but you know just yeah. something that's so exotic to me I, you know yeah I mean you, you shape your your view of what America is based off what you see on TV and in the movies you know I mean 
before I came to LA, I knew LA because I liked Lethal Weapon, you know? Sure. Um, and uh, it's also, and, and again, not without, not to, to really go into that, but like, um, I mean, this is pretty current too, but like we, when you watch, I mean, Lethal Weapon's a good example because like, like I was, when I watched something like Lethal Weapon, I was like, oh, that's, that's what Americans look like. You know what I mean? Like you, you didn't, um, like I didn't feel that there's still certain like social tension until you actually come here and experience it. You know what I mean? We're like, yeah, I shouldn't even get into that. Sure, sure. <laughs> Class distinctions. Things. I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I get it. I mean, I saw, let's say, the TV show Hunter. And uh -huh. I thought, oh wow, LA looks so cool, you yeah, know. Yeah. And um, I'm dating myself with that one, but you know, or or I, I watched the movie. Uh, I think it was Gotcha with Anthony Edwards, uh -huh. and part of it takes place, I think, near UCLA. And so, oh. as a kid, yeah, you see these things, and LA looks really cool. And I can see yeah. there there's certain pulls that we have towards certain places by what we've watched. You know? Yeah, it's just yeah. interesting how that shapes you. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I still I still get that, just like going to like San Francisco and it's like you know there's like as a, as a teenager I loved The Rock it was like one of my favorite action films and like I only recently went to San Francisco you still get excited when you're like oh my god look at that I saw that in a movie <laughs> you know? right yeah well I know you said that you've written down this list of lessons learned and I was just wondering if you could share three of them about filmmaking and what you would pass on to someone else and and these are like these the special book that you're going to hand over and there's three three magical uh -huh. sort of answers there um well off the top of my head i mean i think that and obviously a lot of this is very specific to my experience um and not every film production is the same so some of these things might automatically be solved on a different production but i mean i think that one of the biggest things for me was just because Look, on any films, there's never a lot of time um, in pre-production, but like we didn't have any pre-production rehearsals with the actors. We didn't even have a, a, a table read. Wow. Um, and uh, that's sort of where you kind of, in those rehearsals and the table read, you kind of, not necessarily shape the performances, but you find the characters and you also find the tone. And you really want to have that before you step on set um, because you can shape the tone with all the actors ahead of time as opposed to because once you're on set not all the actors work at the same time um, it's just more difficult when once you're on set if you have to shape the tone of the different performances on the day of especially since one actor might not even start or join the production until two weeks down the road uh, and again we didn't have we didn't really have um, the, the money for it to do that but that's one thing that I would be a, probably a little bit more insistent on budgeting for like let's take money out of something else and make sure that at least have a table read just so all the actors can be in a room read it and you can kind of just sort of figure out what each person's performance is going to be like so when you walk on set you don't have to figure that out as you go um, because especially in a movie like this that's a bit of a, a hybrid of genres the tones are already tricky to get right. Uh, the more you can sort of solve ahead of time, the better. So that's, I'd be um, pushing a little bit more for, let's do a table read, even if it's, you know, two days before the shoot starts. Um, the other thing is a little bit more specific for the way I work. Um, and uh, 
just because I'm very or so I didn't do storyboards on on this film because it just wasn't time uh, and that's fine but what I did was I did a shot list um, and just because I'm an editor and also uh, obsessively organized my shot list was excessive it was 500 pages long oh. yeah and I still <laughs> I still tell myself that and it's probably true because I heard it from other people on the crew too it kind of saved our butts just because when things move fast it's good to have everything planned but um, it was just 500 pages is a lot to manage on set I mean it was two huge binders um, and I think the next time in my prep what I would do is I can still do these 500 pages but just come up with an abbreviated version of that that's ready to go so uh, when you shoot so you're not staying up all night reading a million pages trying to summarize it for the next day because you won't have time you know so um, yeah that's one that's I mean that's more like my experience ah, what those else? are two yeah just the third yeah I'm trying to think what a good one is those are two great ones though uh-huh yeah um well i mean there's the there's the the fight choreography thing just because we didn't have a lot of rehearsals we obviously also didn't have time to teach the actors any of the 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 action stuff ahead of time also something that had to happen the day of not ideal you know so ideally you can have um, actors do that during pre-production too i'm trying to think of something that's a little bit more different though yeah, well, I mean, I talked uh, before about like the big screen and just like how to how you have to keep that in mind. Um, just because like during production, you're seeing everything on a screen, you know, this big, maybe even just like this small. Um, and even in the edit, you're on an Avid, you know, it's, you have a monitor like that. Once you um, once you see it on the big screen, the editing will automatically feel faster. You know, the, the camera shakes will automatically feel bigger. So it's like when you shoot and frame your shots and when you edit that stuff together, uh, just keep in mind that it's gonna be, you know, however big a screen is. Um, just plan for that. Um, what else? I'm trying to think. It's a long list. Um, oh my God. But there's, I mean, there's technical stuff like buy an iPad. <laughs> yeah. Next time I just need to buy, just because I had like five or six different binders, I was very much a paper person. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on a movie set where everything moves fast. It's next time it'd be good to just be able to do that and have it all, you know, in a little thing. What happened when things didn't go as planned? How are you able to just regroup? I mean, honestly, it was, it's just, it's just prep. Um, we knew things were gonna go wrong, but like, I mean, I made especially for like the the more active, visceral stuff on set, like the action scenes. Like, there's there's, like, I had backup plans, and then I had backup plans for the backup plan. <laughs> each one a little simpler than the one before. So when things go wrong or you run out of time, you don't have to try and figure it out on the spot, but you can just be like, all right, here's another shot list. Let's just do this. And that happened every single day. Yeah. Were there times when the backup plan for the backup plan failed? Um, you know, I don't think we ever really had, I mean, things did go wrong. That's just Murphy's law. That's just what, you know, it will, it just happens on movie sets. I don't think anything ever went that wrong that I ran out of backup plans and maybe that's just again because I, I I'm just kind of obsessive when it comes to preparing 
Um, the reason why the shot list was 500 pages is because there's, there's alternative shots. Hey, if we can't do this shot, do this shot, you know. Um, I mean, the things that went the most wrong is just when we ran out of time and couldn't do a whole scene, you know, but as a director at that point, there's not much you can do because that's more like a production issue. Um, then you're just thinking, how can we fix that in post? You, you know? mean when you didn't make your day and so you had to... There's laugh? just when, when too many scenes were crammed into one day. I mean, yeah, sometimes there's... Well, I mean, it happened, I think... How many scenes did we not get? I think it was actually just one. One, maybe two. Uh, scenes that we just like yeah when 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 and it's, it was just a scheduling issue like when you it, when an action scene is scheduled on one day you might want to just spend the day on that you know what i mean it's hard to then also do a company move and get another scene in so there was one scene with michael o'neill that uh we didn't get yeah but we fixed it in post with adr oh, nice. yeah <laughs>